Hello and welcome to this late night election 2021 edition of the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. It was a good night for Republicans. Republican Glenn Youngkin beat Democrat Terry McAuliffe in the most closely watched race of the evening. That was, of course, the Virginia governor's race. The final votes are still coming in there as we record, but his lead looks like it'll be in the low single digits, which was very close to what the pre-election polling showed. Republicans also look poised to win the lieutenant governor and attorney general's races in Virginia and tie with Democrats in the House of Delegates. So it looks like both parties will each have 50 seats in the Virginia House of Delegates. The New Jersey governor's race is close, and at the time that we're recording this, at almost 1 o'clock in the morning, Democratic incumbent Phil Murphy and Republican challenger Jack Cittarelli are essentially tied with 80% of the vote in. So maybe we'll, we'll learn more as we record, but at least for now, we know that that is a close race, and it is nothing like the you know, 16-point lead that Biden had over Trump or that actually uh, Phil Murphy had uh, when he was elected governor of New Jersey. So I think we have enough information to discuss. We're also going to look at some mayoral races and ballot measures around the country. And here with me to do that, our politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, y'all. Also here with us is elections analyst, Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Morning, Galen. Good morning to you. I appreciate that. And also here with us is elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. All right. So as I think we've put out there, it is one o'clock in the morning. We are tired, but we're going to we're going to give it our all. So hang with us, listeners. First and foremost, what were the mechanics of Yunkin's win? So how did maybe various segments of the Virginia electorate swing or turn out? You know, how did he turn what was, you know, a 10-point lead for Biden. Of course, presidential elections are different altogether, but a state that seemed like it was pretty blue into a race where it looks like he's going to win by somewhere in the range of two-plus points. Well, I think sort of broadly, from like a geographical standpoint, you know, Glenn Youngkin improved on Donald Trump's showing pretty much everywhere in the Commonwealth, and particularly, I think what's most important is he did that in some of the the biggest places in the state. You know, he didn't necessarily win places like Loudoun County or Prince William County in Northern Virginia, which are sort of suburban and exurban counties there that went big for Biden, but he won, he lost them by less, notably less than Trump did. And so put all that together and you end up with Yunkin winning by maybe around two points once this is all said and done. And there, you know, there are different parts of the electorate we could talk about, but I think just sort of understanding that there was sort of a generalized swing to some extent is an easy way of looking at this from the start. Part of that swing too is just how different the electorate was tonight versus 2020. This was from the exit poll in Virginia, but something that really stood out to me was voters were split evenly in tonight's election versus Biden and Trump, 46% versus 46%. And this is in a state, as we've said multiple times, that Biden won by 10 points in 2020. So that kind of disconnect speaks to you know the differential turnout that happens in a midterm when the 
party that's not in the White House is more motivated to vote that clearly was a factor tonight in Virginia. And we'll unpack some of those reasons. You know, the economy was the most important issue on voters' minds this evening, followed by education. I think we're going to talk about some of the parallels we're seeing in New Jersey where education wasn't as much of a factor. But overall, one big takeaway, I think, is just how different the electorate was tonight, perhaps not different from what we would expect in an off-year election, but still very telling um, for why Virginia voted the way it did. I mean, look, I am definitely a big picture guy. I think people, you know, my colleagues, you know, it's become an inside joke at this point that I'm just like, oh, it's it's all about bigger factors. You know, it's not campaign specific. It's just, you know, look, it is we're getting into midterm season. This is kind of the proto midterm. A Democrat is in the White House. When that happens, public opinion shifts against Democrats. Um, It's not surprising that Virginia, though it is, you know, becoming more blue, certainly, I don't think clearly after today, has not graduated into the realm of a safe blue state. Um, And so I think it is completely consistent with the fact that there's a Democrat in the White House and that Democrat is not very popular. I believe that Biden's approval rating is 43% and his disapproval rating is 51% right now. Um, That's nationally, but it was also underwater in, in Virginia, according to the exit polls. You know, when when you have people kind of souring on on the party in power, um, you know, Democratic voters aren't going to turn out at at high rates. And then people are also changing their minds. And I think uh, you see results like you have today uh, and also the the close race in New Jersey, which I do think that the Democrats will win, but um, clearly by a margin that is perhaps too close for comfort. When we look at some of the top line numbers from the exit polls, it looks like there were pretty big swings in the suburbs. So Yunkin won there, according to the exit polls, by about six points. Biden had won there by about eight points. So a 14 point swing. Can we say how much of that is differential turnout, meaning Democrats are staying home versus actual persuasion? You know, people who voted for Biden may now be voting for Glenn Youngkin. I don't think you could say that with, with much confidence until you dig into precinct results. And actually, the, the challenge there is that Virginia doesn't really have good 2020 precinct level results because up until this election, in fact, they reported absentee votes in separate precincts. Uh, so you couldn't, you, you know, there, it's sort of a black box exactly what the precinct level results were in 2020 in Virginia. So I think it's tough to really say that with, with much certainty at all, except to say that I think differential turnout played a really big part in this, um, but we know that this also was basically the highest turnout election for Virginia governor's race. I haven't actually done the full historical deep dive on this yet, but at least in modern times, the highest uh, turnout. Um, So I think you have to acknowledge that some people who voted for Biden in 2020 may have well voted for Yunkin uh, in this election, along with your average Republican just being slightly more likely to turn out than your average Democrat. Yeah, no, I mean, it is, as Jeffrey is saying, like, I think impossible to really answer that with any level of granularity. But I do go back and I don't want to put too much emphasis on the exit polls, but it is one of the like the first bits of data we kind of have to understand how people voted. And just the fact that like, the share of people who voted for Biden and Trump was equal in Virginia, again, a state Biden won by 10 points, 
does suggest maybe while persuasion could have still played a role in tonight, it was also just a different electorate. And Republicans, as we had seen in polls leading up to the election, were more enthusiastic to turn out. You know, we are going to continue to get some votes that were cast early in the days ahead here. So the margin will close, it will narrow, but it does seem to kind of reflect where our polling average was frozen right before the race with Youngkin having about a one point margin, a one point lead. Yeah, I want to put a little asterisk there and say that people aren't always the best. Um, you know, they're not super reliable when you ask them who they voted for. And sometimes people, there's usually a bias toward people saying that they voted for the winner of the election, but maybe there's some buyer's remorse and maybe there's some Biden voters who say, oh yeah, I voted for Trump, or maybe they genuinely misremember. Um, so so there could be that factor. I think that there was probably both the differential turnout and some people changing their minds. Um, it's worth noting though that, you know, when we and others have looked into this question, um, you know, we found that uh, people changing their minds is um, kind of the, the main driver of the kind of midterm um, midterm curse. You mentioned there, Sarah, that the polls showed about a one-point lead for Yunkin going into the night. Can we just, before we get any deeper into what happened in Virginia, take a moment to talk about that, since polls are so much of what we talk about here at 538? Should I take this to mean that the polls are not, in fact, broken? Yeah, the poll the polls are not broken. Um, you know, it's interesting given the two like marquee races tonight, both Virginia and New Jersey. You know, the New Jersey picture was a lot more muddled going in, right? You had some races showing this to be a close single-digit lead in favor of Murphy. Some of it had it, you know, at nine points, or even I believe one poll had it at double digits in terms of his lead there. There's still a lot of the vote in New Jersey that we don't fully understand. You know, what percentage of the absentee vote is in? Um, and some kind of weird shifts where, you know, Chitterelli is leading in some parts of the state that is unexpected while still behind in other parts. So we're unpacking that. Um, but in Virginia, where we had a polling average, because there were enough high quality polls there, it really does suggest that, right, like tonight's election was in th- within the margin of error, within where our average was. Not like California, right? Um, and by California, I mean the governor recall election there. We actually saw a pretty large polling miss um, in favor of Newsom. So it's to say that, you know, polls are still one of the better indicators we have for kind of understanding an election going into it. Yeah, we've said it before, and we'll say it again, you can't predict the, the direction or the magnitude of the error of polls. So we have this election, which where the polls are pretty good, California, where they overestimated um, Republicans, um, 2020, when they overestimated Democrats, and then 2018 midterms when they were pretty much perfect. So I think at this point, you are cherry picking if you're looking at 2020 and 2016 and saying, oh, polls are broken, they always overestimate Democrats. Um, I will also say this is kind of another point in favor of the theory that when Trump isn't on the ballot, the polls are fine. I don't think that theory will ever truly be provable um, in the end one way or the other. Um, But it does kind of look increasingly plausible um, now. Oh, God, Nathaniel, that's like a whole... (laughs) That's a whole tangent that we could we could go down that, take a left turn, and this podcast could go completely off the rails. <laughs> All right. Well then I will I will grab the wheel of the bus and steer it decisively <laughs> back towards the direction of what happened in Virginia. Rakage, you laid out one argument, which is that it's all macro trends, you know. There's thermostatic public opinion. People basically, they elect Democrats and then they vote against them. And then they elect Republicans and then they vote against them. And we just kind of 
you know, run back and forth from one side of the American political soccer field to the other. I don't, you know, it's too late for metaphors. But why does that happen? And are there actual issues that people care about that can exacerbate that trend to a greater degree? And do candidates matter? I mean, I think there was a lot of emphasis put on the kind of candidate that Glenn Youngkin is. And to that point, you know, Jack Cittarelli is a non-Trump aligned Republican moderate as well in New Jersey. So how do we assign points to like how much each thing has to do with the result? Oof. I don't I don't know if you can be quite that literal in terms of trying to map a one-to-one on it, right? So I think as we've been talking about, there is this natural tendency of kind of the reaction to the party in the White House, particularly in a midterm election. This is not that, but it is an off-year election. The Virginia race, the New Jersey race have often been a time for voters to kind of get their their first opportunity to voice displeasure with the current administration. And particularly when you consider Democrats have a trifecta right now, right? The White House control of Congress. Um, But I do think, you know, by just focusing on, well, a lot of this is to be expected, we do miss some of the issues that are animating voters. And I don't want to overstate the importance of education. And again, this was from the exit polls, but I thought it was really telling that the margin by which voters broke for Yunkin on the issue of the economy was just the same as on the issue of education. And the economy was ultimately more important to voters, too. That said, though, with everything that has happened in the last two and a half years with the pandemic, I think there's so much we haven't begun to unpack and disentangle as a country when it comes to COVID-19, what that has meant in education, both the dog whistles that have been embedded in a lot of the discourse around critical race theory, but also some of the concerns parents have around their child's education and, you know, why they've had remote learning when other states have allowed children to go back to school. Virginia had some of the most serious restrictions in comparison to other states. The polling doesn't really capture what it is that voters were upset about, particularly when it comes to education. But it's hard for me to think that that doesn't also factor into the race here. I mean, I don't necessarily see the two as mutually exclusive. I just think it kind of fits into human nature, which is that like the grass is always greener on the other side. Um, And that, you know, there are these overarching trends that people sour on the party in power. And maybe there is this a gap that is filled of, you know, insert issue here in which voters decide, you know, that the governing party is is deficient and and maybe that is you know the delta variant um you know and the pandemic not being over when it seemed like it was maybe it's the sluggish economy that is um as a result uh, of of the pandemic maybe it is um um, right maybe it's you know biden's failure so far to to pass kind of meaningful fiscal legislation you know i think that these are all things that you can plug into this this gap where of, of, you know, voters will always find something, I think, to be dissatisfied with the current president on, especially after a few months. I think that there's this honeymoon period, they give them a chance, and then they kind of say after three to six months, hmm, the country hasn't magically fixed itself. Let's go back to being kind of uh, grumpy. No, no, I think that's right. And maybe that speaks to your broader meta point, Nathaniel, that, you know, 
everything's so nationalized that it also seems like on the key issues, the parties really do offer two very distinct but separate and polarizing and opposite views on something. And maybe that plays into then kind of like our pendulum politics as it's like, well, I don't know if I really like this party, but I at least like where they're standing on education versus Democrats this year. And then, you know, once Republicans are in power, they'll be like, oh, well, now things have gone a little bit too far. I actually don't like that and switch back. And I just... I don't know. It's interesting, um, particularly in house races, and I'm thinking back to our 2020 analysis, but finding how well moderates have done. And then yet in a lot of these like bigger races, at least when it's pitting a Democrat versus a Republican, there's often not really a push towards the middle, um, but more so the extremes of both parties playing out. Yeah, no, I think I think you're spot on with that, Sarah. Um, but I would also say that, you know, that also doesn't necessarily mean that candidates don't matter at all. You know, I think they matter on the margins. I think, for example, if, you know, going back to the um, convention or, you know, the primary that wasn't here in Virginia, if Republicans had nominated somebody like Amanda Chase, who described herself as Trump in heels, I think clearly they would have lost, um, you know, and Glenn Youngkin, because he was kind of a generic Republican, a businessman, somebody without a strong record, um, Republicans were able, especially maybe suburban Republican or former Republicans who maybe had switched over to voting for Biden, were able to read into him, you know, maybe a less Trumpy, um, you know, thing, basically see in him what they wanted to see. Um, and, uh, and, and that really helped him. Yeah, I mean, it seems like looking at these exit polls, there had to be people in the electorate who were either pretty moderate independence-ish, maybe even lean towards the Democratic column, who still voted for Yunkin. Because when you look at the questions, for example, 59% of the electorate tonight favor legal abortion. 55% support employer mandates for coronavirus vaccines. Those are the positions of the Democratic Party. So there were people who held those positions who were still voting for Yunkin. There's possibly a world in which Republicans could have nominated someone who who would have like pushed those people towards voting for a Democrat or not turning out at all. So maybe this suggests that candidate selection did matter in this case. I mean, one way to test that theory is to look at the down ballot races in which Glenn Youngkin and Terry McAuliffe were not on the ballot and see whether or not the, the same margins held. Have we seen that? I'm actually not sure that that separation actually will tell you very much because there isn't much separation. Um, and that was actually somewhat expected. And by that, I mean, there was very little split ticket voting. The results for Yunkin look almost identical to those for uh, Winston Sears, the lieutenant governor nominee for the Republicans who has won. And then Jason Miaris, the, uh, the attorney general candidate for them, who's got basically the same percentage and is in the lead. So basically, I think the larger point here is that things are really polarized and there's very little split ticket voting. And this has actually been a pattern in recent Virginia statewide elections uh, for these offices. So, you know, I'm not really sure the down ballot tells you all that much. Um, It does look like the House of Delegates races are going to be very close. The lower house of the Virginia state legislature, um, it could be 50-50 once everything is counted, though I think that still is to be determined. So that would mean that Democrats lost five seats, maybe they'll lose six, and Republicans will have a narrow majority. But either way, they did lose some ground, but it's not sort of like the total wipeout kind of situation, um, which I think would be easier from a, a narrative standpoint. So it's not the kind of environment, so to say, 
where Glenn Youngkin is doing really well, but down ballot candidates aren't. And that would suggest that Glenn Youngkin is some sort of unicorn. Right. And actually, you know, to be honest, I, I'm sort of of the mindset that someone like a Pete Snyder, who was competing with Youngkin for the nomination, you know, would have had a similar sort of outsider vibe, businessman, I could have maybe put together something of the same coalition that Youngkin managed to do. Um, but did he have a fleece vest, Jeffrey? Uh, I don't know. I, I I don't recall him wearing fleece vests. Um, so, you know, it's true. He could not, maybe that wouldn't have been this sartorial uh, thing that caught everybody's eye. But I do think that that sort of speaks to the idea that, yeah, Yunkin's not necessarily a unicorn here. Um, but, you know, he had what it took to, to win and was able to sort of straddle that Trump-friendly but not too Trump-friendly kind of perspective that probably was necessary to win in a state like Virginia, because if it had been a Trumpier candidate, I, I do think um, McAuliffe would probably have won tonight. Yeah, no, it's interesting to the extent to which part of McAuliffe's strategy was really trying to link Yunkin to Trump. And we saw that that was successful for the recall race in California. Newsom did that to great effect against his opponent, Elder. I think as Jeffrey was suggesting, though, with Yunkin, um, there's a different level of candidate at play in that race, right? Even different from previous gubernatorial races in Virginia in terms of the opponents kind of being more, or the candidates being more evenly matched. This was from a reader and they, they'd they sent this to our colleague, Alex Samuels, um, but they wrote that, you know, the endless McAuliffe commercials and talking points trying to tie Yunkin to Trump just didn't stick. In some ways, Yunkin took on the Trump votes as the GOP candidate, but kept his distance enough to retain an appeal for never Trumpers and independents. And at least at this point, I would say that the exit polls kind of bear that analysis, right? We were talking about how Yunkin did win the suburbs. It wasn't by like this huge margin, but that is a reversal from what we saw in 2018 and 2020. And I think, again, we don't want to read too much going into the midterms, but a question we have, right, is how much will the suburbs remain in the Democrats' column moving ahead and how many of those shifts um, were lasting? Yeah, well, I think in some ways, the analysis that Glenn Youngkin is is not a unicorn is probably, you know, bodes better for Republicans than if he was some sort of like amazing candidate. It seems like this is probably replicable. But I want to talk about another statewide race tonight that will maybe help us better understand the extent to which this is replicable, and that's New Jersey. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. 
Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries, backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's take a look at the results in New Jersey, where we still don't have a full picture. But Nathaniel, what can we say? I think it's too early to say. We don't know what the final margin in New Jersey is going to be. You know, let's say for argument's sake that Murphy wins by five points. That would probably be pretty consistent, right, with Virginia. That would be a shift of about 10 points toward Republicans, um, you know, since 2020. Um, so it wouldn't necessarily be worse, but it does kind of go to show, like, if Virginia were the only race on the ballot, if this were the California recall, for example, um, I think, you know, a lot of these takes about, you know, this is spelling doom for Democrats would be a lot more tenuous because we always say you don't want to draw conclusions from one race, but it wasn't just one race. It was New Jersey. It was the, the down ballot races in Virginia, um, you know, races in um, Pennsylvania and New York, which, um, you know, we still don't know the, the results too, but, um, but may have gone um, the conservative way. So, you know, I, th- I just think that together, New Jersey plus Virginia plus these other races reinforces the narrative and makes us a lot more certain of the fact that, like, yes, we are in this Republican-leaning national environment. Yeah, and, you know, we were talking about candidates earlier, and maybe, you know, I made it sound like Youngkin didn't matter as much in the Virginia race, and he did matter to some extent, and I think we also can see that a little bit in the New, Jer- New Jersey race. You know, to your point, Galen, you, you mentioned Chitterelli, Jack Chitterelli, the Republican, is not exactly... Um, a gung-ho uh, fan of President Trump, although he definitely have warmed to, to Trump since he took office. Back in 2015, he actually was critical uh, during, the, during the early days of the primary. Um, but uh, has, I think was able, as a former state delegate, had a bit of a moderate reputation when he was in Trenton. You know, all this worked in his favor as a statewide candidate versus a couple of the much Trumpier candidates who ran against him in the Republican primary for governor and you know if one of them had somehow beaten him for this position you know i think murphy would be in sort of a cakewalk so i it's sort of a like candidates matter but let's not overstate how much they matter um you know is maybe the best way to look at this and to nathaniel's point you know depending on what murphy ends up winning by you know we could sort of see a comparison here of uh not a uniform shift but you know, a, a, a notable shift in the Republicans' direction, sort of regardless of the place. Yeah, and I'll just make the point that, you know, if you do see that same shift or even a bigger shift potentially in New Jersey, you know, that does kind of go to show that it wasn't that Glenn Youngkin figured out that Virginia parents really don't want their you know school boards telling their kids what to do, you know, that it, it was these kind of more macro trends. 
Yeah, I think I said on the live blog tonight that the explanations for how voters behave or feel about certain politicians or parties is like a matryoshka doll, a Russian doll of reasons. And so like the biggest doll is maybe Hmm. what's the party in power? What are the thermostatic public opinion forces at play? You open up that doll inside are like maybe the issues. Is the economy tanking? Are cultural issues at forefront? Are racial issues at the forefront of people's minds? And you like open up that doll and then you see the candidates. Okay, is it a candidate who's suited to the state, suited to the moment, for example? It's not like one factor matters and the other factor doesn't. It's just an issue of scale. And uh, when I guess all three things line up for you, perhaps like they did in New Jersey and Virginia tonight for Republicans, you can do quite well. So we'll probably spend more time on this podcast talking about exactly how these wins came together and what the national political environment looks like and who these candidates are. But in the immediate future, both parties kind of have to contend with these results. Does this change what happens in Washington now? Does this change how Democrats behave? Does it change how Republicans behave? Oh, I think Republicans are definitely going to say, you know, let's run education, let's run on criticizing the Biden administration for spending and inflation. You know, these are all sensible approaches, given that, you know, parties are going to react to, especially when they see success, they're going to try to replicate that success. Um, Even if, you know, as I, I tend to agree with Nathaniel, it's more of these macro factors that are playing into this. But those macro factors very well may be in a similar place here about a year from now. And if they are, that's going to be really good for the Republicans' chances in the midterms uh, of taking the House and the Senate and by some margin. So, you know, I, I think that in some ways, uh, these elections were proving grounds for talking about these issues. And, you know, the GOP will be using them in the upcoming election, which means Democrats have to figure out maybe talking about Trump nonstop is not going to be the ticket that they were hoping it was. Again, I don't know if I actually don't know if these elections disprove that, but I do think that it sure doesn't show that that's some sort of magic bullet, you know, silver bullet for them. Maybe that's going to be a reaction uh, from the Democratic side. I feel like Democrats are going to be under more pressure to pass infrastructure and the the Build Back Better plan. Um, you know, I think probably a fair number of them think that this is what cost them the race. I also think maybe they will try to, you know, maybe they'll, they'll pass it. I mean, you know, they seem, I mean, they've been saying this for a long time, but they seem to be on track to pass it in the next couple of days. Um, and maybe they'll see that also as a way to change the the media narrative um, that's going to come out, like the news cycle that's going to come out of this. Um, but I think ultimately, if they're kind of pinning their hopes uh, for 2022 on the fact that, okay, we did this now, so voters can go back to loving us, um, I I'm not sure that'll be successful. Yeah. I mean, there's no way to not look at tonight's results, both in Virginia and New Jersey, but then also in mayoral races, ballot initiatives, and not kind of to have a takeaway that is, oh, this wasn't on net good for Democrats. However, I do think like there is a tendency to want to oversimplify some of the takeaways. And I think what we're already going to see now is kind of this pushback against elements of the Democratic Party that have been more vocal and progressive, particularly, you know, given something like the um, 
ballot initiative in Minneapolis around policing and developing a department of safety there that which kind of like largely sucked up into like, oh, defund the police, you know, that failed, right? So then that's another data point. We already saw that coming out of the 2020 election, where some more moderate Democrats were hesitant around the messaging there. But I bring that up because by, you know, at the same time that that happened in Minneapolis, in Boston, they elected a very progressive candidate by a huge margin there. You mentioned the ballot measure in Minneapolis. I know, Nathaniel, that you have been tracking all kinds of ballot measures in local races. What are some of the other notable ones where we we have results at this point? Yeah, so I think another narrative going into this race was the progressive versus moderate battle. A lot of mayor's races were kind of broke down unusually neatly along those lines, I think, you know, considering that those lines are often kind of exaggerated or, you know, people are forced into these boxes. Um, But I think it was a pretty mixed bag. Um, So for example, as Sarah mentioned, uh, the progressive candidate won in Boston, Um, the progressive candidate also won in Cleveland. But then on the other hand, you have um, the more moderate incumbent mayor of Minneapolis, who looks like he's won, that's not official yet. Same with the moderate incumbent mayor of Buffalo, looks like he's won, and um, the more moderate candidate in Seattle as well. Um, And then in terms of the ballot initiatives, you had this ballot measure to replace the police with the Department of Public Safety in Minneapolis, which of course was the hometown of George Floyd. That measure failed, but then a measure in Cleveland that um, set up an oversight board for the police, that measure passed. So I think it's really hard to say after tonight's results that, you know, one side of the Democratic Party really prevailed, um, which maybe is good because, um, you know, I think if we had to deal with hot takes on two different fronts, um, you know, Twitter would explode. All right. Well, you mentioned hot takes coming out of this night. So before we go, I'm going to ask you guys, do you have a headline from this evening to close out our podcast with? Reality of an unpopular Democratic president rears its ugly head for Democrats. It really helps Republicans. Wow. All right. (laughs) Yeah, I would, you know, to paraphrase a friend of 538, Nathan Gonzalez of Inside Elections, um, Democrats' majorities in Congress were in danger before Tuesday, and they are in danger after Tuesday. As you can tell, as you can come on, Sarah, you can't take your own medicine. You're the one who always asks us for the headlines on That's the live so true. blog. I know. And as you can tell, listeners, I really love coming up with headlines. Okay, I got a, I got a mysterious one. An affirmation of a post-Trump GOP question mark. There you go. You decipher what that means, and let me know once you figure that out. All right, and here's my headline. With all elections expected to be called by Friday, I will not have to celebrate my birthday on a late night podcast in 2021. Thank you. Cheers to that. Careful, careful, Galen. Careful. I know, I know, I know. You don't know what you might have just (laughs) set off. New Jersey hasn't been called yet. You're right. I'm just, I think that's just wishful thinking. Uh, Okay. Well, forget I said anything. Uh, Thank you, Sarah, Jeff, and Nathaniel. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Drew. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.
people who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.